Okay, good. So we'll continue with where we left off. And uh, fill the universe, the space in front of you with holy beings, and the space around you with all the sentient beings in human form. So we sentient beings are conditioned phenomena. We arise due to causes and conditions. And it's only due to causes and conditions that we exist. So we don't have any inherent nature of our own that is going to make us continue to exist. But rather, we're conditioned by our environment, the ripening of previous karma, what's going on in our mind, the things that we read and listen to. And thus we're always changing, always in a state of flux. And if we want to follow a spiritual path, we should know what that spiritual path is about. Because to follow it, we have to learn it practice it, and that will be thing, those will be things that condition us further, that will take us in different directions. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, we have to do it from uh, the knowledge of what they are and how they are going to train us, how they will condition us. And then decide if that's the way we want to go. So doing that entails knowing something about what the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha are. And also having some 
understanding of what we seek in our objects of refuge, what we seek in the path that we want to follow. And the teacher, the Buddha, who has experienced that path. So take a moment and consider some of the qualities of the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and why uh, you want to follow them. And we also need to know why we want to follow this path. What is our motivation? What kind of student are we now and what kind of student do we want to become to follow our chosen objects of refuge? And why do we want to attain the result of the path? Because if this isn't somewhat clear in our mind, we're just kind of wandering around hearing a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and getting confused and adding our own opinions in, and uh, or just taking what is taught as the truth with a capital T, so we don't need to think about it, we just need to recite it. So for whose benefit, for what benefit are we turning to these objects of refuge with the wish to follow the path they teach? So think about that.
on checking why we want to follow the path, we may discover, if we're honest, what our real motivation is. And it may not be the kind of motivation that we ideally would like to have. And for that reason, it's good to always, even if it's in a contrived way, an artificial way, to generate the kind of motivation we want to have so that we can steer our mind in that direction and eventually make that contrived motivation something that is really deep in our own heart. So in this way, cultivate bodhicitta. So when we generate bodhicitta, sometimes we do it in a way that we start to think of uh, everything that we're going to have to cultivate and develop and go through on the path to awakening. And instead of seeing it as, wow, this is fantastic, look what I will be able to do in the future, because we've read the stories of uh, the previous bodhisattvas, or we've studied the salam, the paths and, and stages, and we're really inspired by them. So that may happen. Or we may look and say, oh, these are the qualities of the bodhisattvas. I can't imagine myself cultivating these. They're just too difficult. I just want to be happy in my own simple way, yeah, with a nice environment where I can be around the people I like and not have to face problems, have all the chocolate I want, and, you know, not worry about anything else. Yeah, do you ever have that wish? Yeah. And it's like, the Buddha gave his body to a tigress. Well, good for him. I admire that. (laughs) I admire that he did that. The tigress came out well. Yeah, but but that that's just too much for me. Yeah. I just want to be comfortable. Yeah. 
can't we make everything comfortable? I don't want to go anything through anything uncomfortable. I just want comfortable. It doesn't have to be glittering. I don't want bliss. Bliss is like too high. You know, bliss you have to like put some effort to have. Yeah? I just want to be able to sit there and be comfortable. You know, no mosquitoes. Yeah. No politics. Just, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of where we're at, isn't it? Yeah. So that's why we have to uh, cultivate the bodhicitta, <laughs> even if it's artificial, even if it's contrived. And instead of looking at the path ahead as that's something I have to do, to look at it as something that I will cultivate and gradually experience the wonder, wonderful results of. So the, the path is going to be the same. It's just how we look at it. Yeah. It's like when you're on, uh, you know, you're cooking lunch for the day. It could be, I've got to cook lunch. I really don't feel like it. But I was on the road and everybody will be mad if I don't do it. So, okay, what are we having? Uh, rice, beans, cabbage, <laughs> salad with vinegar. Yeah, and I'll make a nice dessert. Yeah, no eggs, so it'll taste like a sponge. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I just, you know, so you could see your cooking day like that. Or you could see, you know, this is a chance to be creative and people, you know, people will be happy to have some variety. So I can maybe make, you know, um, burnt shish kebab. <laughs> Yeah, or I could try making my own bagels. You have to boil them and then bake them, or bake them and then boil them. I'm not sure on the art. Yeah, no, you have to do both. You boil first. Okay, oh, there's a good a few people who know how to make bagels. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it depends how you approach how you're going to cook. If it's going to be something fun that you can imagine people eating and, you know, feeling content with and, you know, seeing as a nice offering, yeah, then it's different than when it's like, oh, I got to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So today we're going to have a lunch everybody likes. Yeah. Put away all the stuff that's good for you. Start with the ice cream. <laughs> Some people here already do. Yeah, eat your dessert first and then the stuff that's good for you. But we'll only 
do the dessert. Yeah. Of course, nobody can agree on what kind of dessert they want, but never mind. Yeah, just add some vinegar and orange juice to it. <laughs> Okay, so I, I think you got the point, yeah? So in the first section, you know, here, um, it talked about the nature of the mind and how the nature of the mind is clear light. Here, meaning that the nature of the mind uh, is untarnished, yeah? It, it is, uh, you know, by its own, the afflictions have not entered into the nature of the mind. Okay. And so because of that, these afflictions, when you know the antidote, can be removed. Okay. And, um, you know, so the affliction, the basic nature of the mind is pure. The afflictions are adventitious. They are not who we are. They aren't a permanent, inherent part of our mind. And uh, the afflictions have antidotes. So there's ways to eliminate them. Yeah. And all of this works because we're conditioned phenomena. If we were inherently existent, then the afflictions would be the inherent nature of the mind and would not depend on causes and conditions and thus could there would be no antidote to them okay because they would be right there in the nature of the mind okay so one example they often give is uh, a glass of muddy water so when you look at the glass of muddy water it looks like muddy water but if you let the mud, uh, the dirt in the water settle, then you can see that the water itself is clear. The dirt is not the nature of the water, you know, and the dirt can be removed. You need a really good filter, yeah, but uh, you can get rid of it. So it's kind of like that, you know. If the, if the muddy water uh, if the if the dirt were the you know inherent in the nature of the muddy water, then you could never have clean water. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's in terms of how the afflictions can be counteracted, how we can um, get rid of and overcome the undesirable things that are contaminating the mind. Okay, then this section, the ex excellent qualities can be cultivated limitlessly, um, talks about the opposite, how we can, how it's possible to develop the good qualities in the mind. Okay, and so it's important to understand the, this and relate it to our mind, because when we, when we do and we really believe this, then uh, we won't get discouraged and say, I'm too hopeless, it's too hard. You know, when they passed around Buddha nature, everybody got it, but the Buddha skipped me. You know, we're not talking about God here, okay? <laughs> yeah. The, 
And also, we should think people throw around the term Buddha nature a lot. And I always want to say, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Oh, it's my potential to become a Buddha. Okay, yeah, what is that? What is it in you that can become a Buddha? And that gives you the ability to become a Buddha. Yeah. Otherwise, it's, well, I have a Buddha nature. Everybody has the Buddha nature. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That sounds good. I don't want to, you know. You know what I mean? How we throw terms around a lot. Okay, I'm going to go on, off on a tangent here on another term that I hear almost every BBC, not every BBC, but many. I have compassion for myself. I hear that so much. Yeah. Something, this and this happened. I did this and this. I have compassion for myself. Jeffrey, in one of his talks, was saying that actually in the scriptures, compassion is cultivated for other sentient beings. It's not cultivated for yourself. Okay. That does not mean that we should criticize ourselves and deprecate ourselves and tell ourselves we're stupid and not worthwhile. Because also the Buddha said that that's a form of laziness and that's a hindrance to the path. Okay. But I wonder sometimes, just like I wonder when people say, oh, I have Buddha nature, what they mean. When they say, I have compassion for myself, what do you mean? Yeah. It's like, oh, this horrible thing happened, and I'm suffering, and, you know, I lost my job, and I'm in debt, and what am I going to do? And, you know, poor me, but I'm not going to get depressed. I, I have compassion for myself. Yes, poor me. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll get through it. I'll get through it, yeah. Is that what compassion for yourself means? Yeah, that you feel sorry for yourself? That you throw a nice pity party? Yeah. You know, what do we really mean? Like, like, okay, the, the name of volume six, what was the name of volume six? Courageous compassion. It, it isn't pitiful compassion. <laughs> it's courageous compassion. And His Holiness says repeatedly, bodhisattvas have to have so much inner strength. Yeah. But if we confuse compassion for ourselves, for feeling sorry for ourselves and babying ourselves, you know, oh, this horrible thing happened. I feel so upset and oh, I need something that's going to perk me up and feel good. Uh, I'm going to go to the mall and buy myself a present. I heard somebody say that one time. Not somebody here, but one place where I was. Yeah, I'm gonna, I need to go buy myself a present. Yeah, courageous compassion. Yeah, courageous compassion. You have, you have something in you 
that is willing to take on a challenge, you know. And you know you may not be perfect, but you have enough confidence to, like, try and do something, okay? So it's not feeling sorry for yourself. And I think in some way, rather than compassion for myself, and when I look inside what, what I do, is I have to accept the situation. To me, the key is acceptance. Yeah, something bad happens. I'm alarmed. I'm upset. You know, whatever. Acceptance. Yes, this is happening. Yeah, because if we don't accept what's happening in the present, then we are in denial of what exists. So we have to accept the present situation. It may not be great, but be thought, but because things are impermanent, it can change and we can change. Okay. So I, I always go to acceptance. I accept what it is. Yeah. It will change by itself. But I can also do things to make it change. Yeah. And this will be good for my path. Even though it's difficult, this is good training for me. I'm a bodhisattva wannabe. Okay. Bodhisattva wannabes aren't content with being comfortable. Yeah. Bodhisattva wannabes, you know, say everything can be taken into the path and I can use every opportunity to develop bodhicitta, to develop my understanding of impermanence, of emptiness. Okay? So that kind of attitude has nothing to do with... Poor me, I have compassion for myself. The world just doesn't appreciate me and everything I do. Yeah. That's the crybaby mind. And yes, we are all crybabies. Yeah. But shouldn't we try and grow up at some point? You know? Yeah, I accept I'm a crybaby, and I'm also tired of being a crybaby. You know, it's like I know how to be the perfect crybaby. Yeah, do you know how to be a good crybaby? I know. I, you know we can have a competition. Who can be the best? Do you know what a crybaby is, Yeshila? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think he knows. I don't think he does it. He's not a crybaby. Okay. Yeah. But, but, you know, that courage to, to go forward yeah. and not get stuck. Yeah. And so whether we have compassion for ourselves, pitying ourselves, or whether 
you know, we blame the world for the situation we're in, yeah, or we get discouraged and depressed and say, I'm hopeless. All of that is just more garbage. Yeah, so uh, we shouldn't buy into it. Uh, sometimes we make a really bad mistake and, you know, we get very down on ourselves and then we say, oh, I have to have compassion for myself because I made that bad mistake. Yeah. What is compassion for yourself? They are mean, you know. Oh, because compassion means, you know, you want somebody to stop suffering and be relieved of suffering. So, oh, I have compassion for myself, but I just, you know, broke a root precept. This is really bad news. Yeah. And like, what a horrible person I am. No, I don't want to feel like that. But I, you know, am I going to cry over it? You know, what am I going to do? What do you do when you've made a bad mistake? What's the antidote? Learn from it. Purify it. How do you purify it? What do you practice? The four opponent powers. Okay? So instead of trashing ourselves and instead of having compassion for myself because... Poor me, I was just overwhelmed by afflictions, and I did this. You know, purify. Purify is the solution. Yeah? So, uh, yeah, so do, do purification. Yeah? Cut the energy of whatever we did. Yeah? Change how we... Look at it, learn from it, make regret it, make a resolve not to do it again. Yeah. Okay, is this? Yeah. Okay. So let's continue then with the text on page two eighty one if you follow along. Um, so the excellent qualities can be cultivated limitlessly. So the commentary on reliable cognition by Dharmakirti. Did you write that, Geshe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his, that's what his name means. Yeah. Okay, so Dharmakirti explains why it is possible to cultivate the mind's excellent qualities limitlessly and to transform our ordinary mind into a Buddhist fully awakened mind. So three factors made, make this possible. So the first one is that the clear and cognizant nature of the mind is a stable basis for the cultivation of excellent qualities. Yeah, so it's a stable basis. If you're going to build a building, you need stable ground. Okay, this is why they're putting all the structural fill, yeah, back around the Buddha house, because 
if you take away the na the dirt that was there and then put some more dirt on top of it, it isn't stable enough. The dirt has been dug out. Even if you put it back, it doesn't go in exactly as it was. It's not a stable basis for making the pillars. Yeah, so you have to put the structural fill in and all of that. Okay, but so the same thing is, you know, if we're going to try and improve, improve ourselves, we need a stable basis. And so the clear and cognizant nature of the mind is that stable basis because uh, that's the nature of the mind. It's not going to change. Okay, whether you think positive thought or, ne or negative thought, just the clear cognizant nature is not, you know, it's not permanent because it does change moment by moment, okay, but it is everlasting. Okay. So the, then it continues. So the, that clear and cognizant nature of the mind is firm and continual. There is nothing that can cease it. Yeah? Nothing that can cease it. That means if you're depressed and you think killing yourself is going to stop your pain, that's not going to work because the continuity of the mind continues. Yeah. One of the inmates I write to, uh, he told me that at one point he was uh, quite depressed and he was suicidal. And then when he heard the Buddhist talk, talked about rebirth, then he decided not to kill himself because he said, I'm just going to, you know, it's going to be more of the above. Okay. So it's continual and firm. Nothing can cease the continuity of the mind. For example, if we continuously boil water, it will dry up and nothing will remain. There is no basis for limitlessly boiling water. Okay. Excellent qualities cannot be cultivated limitlessly on an unstable basis such as the physical body because it falls ill, ages, and eventually dies. And also because if the scientists are correct, which is uncertain, yeah, I don't think so, but they say we are hardwired to be self-concerned, to be selfish, yeah? And that's why we have the fight-or-flight response. That's why we're always thinking about our own benefit. That's why we want to get our genes into the gene pool. Yeah, what a community. None of us have gotten our genes into the gene pool. Yeah, what failures we are. We don't, we don't cooperate with science. And I mean, that's what they tell us that, you know, by nature, that's what, that's what you're doing. And we say, okay. Um, so just relying on the physical body, relying on the brain, 
Yeah, it's totally unstable. Uh, and we can't cultivate the good qualities limitlessly on that basis. Yeah. Especially if the mind is inherently self-centered. Yeah, if we're inherently self-centered and we're hardwired via our amygdala, then, you know, what can you do? Okay. However, the clear light mind is a stable and continuous basis for cultivating excellent qualities. Stable and continuous. Those two qualities is needed, are needed. The more we train in excellent qualities, the more those qualities will be enhanced limitlessly until they are fully perfected in the state of Buddhahood. So that's why we can, you know, become human beings who have impartial love and compassion for everybody else. You know, even, you know, the person you dislike the most it's possible to generate love and compassion towards those, that person, okay? Okay, then the second quality that, that makes cultivating the, ultim, uh, the excellent qualities limitless is the mind can become habituated to excellent qualities that can be built up cumulatively, okay? So excellent mental qualities can be built up gradually without having to begin anew each time we focus on developing them. This is if we develop them consistently. If we don't put forth consistent energy, then we may develop a good habit and quickly lose it because we stop being attentive and stop cultivating that good habit, we think, oh, well, yeah. I mean, many people do this. Oh, I stopped smoking. I'm done with smoking. Uh, so I don't need to think about that anymore. And then within a month, they're back smoking because they didn't keep up, you know, the mental and physical program to really eliminate the craving for the caffeine the mental and physical craving for it, okay? So, uh, so here's a, uh, an example that, that Dharmakirti gives, that His Holiness gives too. A high jumper cannot develop his or her ability limitlessly, okay? Who's a famous high jumper? Anybody know an Olympic winner of the high jumps? Okay, maybe, maybe we'll we'll change it to Michael Phelps. We all know who he is. Okay, okay. So a swimmer. Okay, so I'll read it for the for the analogy, and we'll change it. Um, each time the bar is raised, that high jumper must cover the same distance they jumped before plus more, okay? So if you want to mm, set a record for uh, 
yeah, set a record, let's say, for how, how fast you're going to swim, yeah, you have to swim as fast as you did the previous time plus a little bit faster, yeah? And if you don't, then what happens? What you had before goes down. You can't even swim as fast as you did before. Okay, so the mind's nature is different. The energy from cultivating a quality one day remains, so that if that quality is cultivated the next day, so here's the continuity part, if it's cultivated the next day, it builds on what was previously accomplished without having to reestablish it. Okay, so it's like building the, the um, sides of the Buddha Hall. Yeah, you put the one row of Foswell, Foswell on, the next day you come back, you don't need to put that row on again. You can build the next row and then the next way, the row after that. And although it took all winter to build the two walls for the first and second story, it got accomplished. Yeah, because of the consistency. Mm -hmm. We do not need to exert the same degree of energy to get to the same level on the second day. And that same effort will serve to increase that excellent quality. So this is why having a daily practice is very important. Because in your daily practice, you think you meditate on a certain topic, you're understanding it. The next day, you do that again. The next day, you do it again. Okay, now somebody's going to say, but there's so many topics in Lom Rim, I can't go through them all in one day. You know, how am I going to increase all of them? Well, yeah, the lineage masters were very clever. They wrote these things called glance meditations. Yeah, we did them last night when we did the Lama Chopa. Okay, that section after we offered Sog. Um, yeah, we... Um, yeah, we do the, the glance meditation that goes through all the different topics of the Lam Rim. So at least we're keeping those topics fresh in our mind. We may not be able to go deep, so much deeper in them, but we're saying them every day and something's going in. Yeah. Of course, this requires consistent training on our part. Otherwise, our spiritual muscles will atrophy. But if we practice regularly, our energy can be directed to enhancing the excellent qualities continuously until the point where they become so familiar that they are natural and spontaneous. Yeah? So uh, this goes also for cultivating our motivation first thing in the morning. You know, you do it every morning, and then it just becomes part of what you do. Okay, then the third factor that helps the excellent qualities be cultivated limitlessly is that excellent qualities can be enhanced, but never diminished by reasoning and wisdom. So they can be diminished by our being lazy, Okay, and not consistently developing them. 
but using reasoning and wisdom can never diminish them because there is no logical uh, or wise um, proposition that can con uh, that can tell us that these good qualities don't exist or can't be developed or whatever. Okay. So constructive attitudes and emotions have a valid support in reasoning and wisdom. Yeah. Somebody may uh, try and refute, uh, you know, like, why do you want to have compassion? Yeah, I mean, people in this world refute all sorts of crazy things. Why do you want to have compassion? You'll just get burnt out. You know, you should look out for yourself. If you don't look out for yourself, nobody else will. So throw all this compassion stuff away. Just forget it. Yeah. Is that a good argument? Is that a true argument? Yeah. We have to be able in our own mind to refute that argument if somebody says that to us. Yeah, because we may actually have the seed of that false view in ourselves and start thinking like that. Yeah, why am I trying to develop infinite compassion for sentient beings? They don't deserve it. What have they done for me? Yeah. If I have compassion for them, they'll just take advantage of me. You know, you start thinking like that because you heard that. And, you know, so we have to be uh, quite aware of, uh, you know, the kind of false arguments and false reasoning people use and then be able to refute that in our own minds. Yeah, And you can refute it to them, too. They're open. Okay. So um, uh, constructive attitudes and emotions can never be harmed by the wisdom realizing reality. Okay. So if we realize the emptiness of inherent existence, that has the power to overcome the afflictions because the afflictions are based on the ground of the self-grasping. So if you make the ground shake, yeah, just live in Los Angeles or San Francisco, the ground shakes, the buildings fall down. Okay? So, yeah, the, the, it's, it's not stable. But if... Um, but all the good qualities can be developed... And they don't need the basis of grasping at inherent existence to come into existence to be developed. Yeah. And, and so, you know, these good qualities can be developed just on the clear and cognizant nature of the mind. Okay. Yeah. So they can never be harmed by the wisdom realizing reality. So that you know, if you start meditating on emptiness and you start thinking, you know, nothing exists. I'm looking for the object of negation. I can't find it. The object of negation is what appears to my sense consciousnesses. So if that doesn't exist, then nothing exists. Yeah. Very easy to start thinking like that. Yeah. 
So we have to see that if we if we're thinking like that, we're we're not meditating on emptiness correctly, because emptiness is not non-existence. It's the absence of inherent existence. Yeah, and this is a common mistake. Mm-hmm. Okay, so compassion, faith, integrity, generosity, concentration, and all the other excellent qualities can be cultivated together with wisdom and are enhanced by wisdom. Yeah. So when you meditate on, on, um, on compassion, you remember when we did Chandakirti's three kinds of compassion? Yeah. Uh, the compassion, looking at sentient beings where you just see them as suffering. The compassion, I forget the official title, but where you're seeing them as impermanent and uh, the self as a self-sufficient, substantially existent self. And then the third, when you're seeing sentient beings as an, you know, empty of inherent existence. The second one was with their empty of, of, uh, of permanence and so on. Okay. So if you're cultivating compassion and you meditate on, you know, in uh, emptiness, that if you're meditating correctly, should enhance your compassion. Why? Because you see, you ask yourself, why are sentient beings suffering? What's the root of their suffering? Ignorance. The ignorance grasping at true existence. Can that ignorance be removed? Yes, it can. How? Why? Because, yeah, that ignorance doesn't exist inherently. And what it's grasping at, you know, it itself is empty. And what it's grasping at is also empty. Nothing is inherently existent. Yeah. So sentient beings, why are they going round and around and around in samsara? Is because of this, you know, very erroneous, deceptive mind that can be eliminated. And then when you see sentient beings as empty of inherent existence, and then you think of how much they grasp it inherently in existence and how much they suffer because of that, then, of course, your your compassion for them becomes stronger because you see that all that suffering doesn't have to be there. It's only there because of ignorance, and ignorance can be eliminated. Yeah. So that gives you a whole lot of confidence in what you're doing and why you're doing it and how, you know, it makes your compassion so much deeper. Mm -hmm. Okay. And also when you realize emptiness, then you see the sentient beings themselves are not inherently existent. Yeah. And that they are, are, uh, dependent arisings that they're conditioned phenomena so that not only can the ignorance be eliminated, but they can be conditioned so that their wisdom develops. Yeah. Sending Ming's state of not having wisdom is not some permanent, inherently existent state. 
It's something that can change, you know, and we can, we can help that, help them do that. Okay. Okay. So for this reason, all those good qualities can be cultivated limitlessly. So I'll just read through the reflection points, but reflect on these points. Okay. So first, reflect that the clear and cognizant nature of the mind is a stable basis for the cultivation of excellent qualities. So here in your meditation, you would ask yourself questions such as, why is a stable basis necessary? And why, how uh, uh, is the clear and cognizant nature of the mind a stable basis? And when I have the stable basis, how can I cultivate these limitless excellent qualities? Okay. So, you know, when we read a point, then we should think of all the subpoints that you need to think about so that that point becomes alive for you. Okay. Second one, remember that the mind can be habituated to excellent qualities, which can be built up cumulatively. So here, think of how you've um, started to build up excellent qualities, yeah, and how you've done that, and how, you know, ever since we were babies, we've been building up excellent qualities. We've built up a few bad ones, too, but, you know, we've been able to learn to speak and communicate. We learn manners, yeah. We learned how to do simple things to benefit others, and so this kind of thing can can be uh, increased. Okay, third, um, the third point, contemplate that excellent qualities can be enhanced but never diminished by reasoning and wisdom. So again, think about what we just talked about there, how reasoning and wisdom, uh, you know, can support the generation of the good qualities. Yeah. That this is correct reasoning. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You always have to make sure that you're thinking in the correct way. And then for understanding these points, feel confidence arise in yourself that with effort and training, your mind can be transformed into the mind of a Buddha. So come up with that conclusion at the end of it. Yeah, that's a good conclusion, huh? Uh, you should feel happy at the end of that meditation. Yeah. If you don't feel happy because you're saying, oh God, I gotta go out in the forest and find my, uh, my, what do you call it? Not my tiger, my, my cougar. Yeah. Where were those two cougars I saw one morning in the forest? I blew it. You know, I could have given them my body. They would have gone yum, yum. Yeah. One looked at me for a long time. We made eye contact. And then the other one, once he saw me, he was terrified. <laughs> and jumped up and ran away, and the other one followed him. And they didn't even, I, I missed my opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
But think about it, you know, do you want to give one of your kidneys to somebody? Yeah. It, it sounds good. Yeah. Until you start making preparations for the surgery and they tell you all the things that the side affects, the things that could go wrong in the surgery. Yeah, because you have to sign a consent slip. And you go, oh, you know, I don't know. This is my kidney. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's interesting, isn't it? How much do you think about your kidneys in your daily life? Yeah? We take our, our, our unless something's wrong with them, we just take our kidneys for granted. We never think about them. They're there. They function. Good. What else is new? Yeah. But once, so we never think, you know, yeah, yeah, oh, the kidneys, yeah, no problem. Yeah, I can give one away because I, when I have the surgery, I'll feel exactly the way I do now, which is I don't think about my kidneys at all. Never have. Then you think, hmm, do they go in from the side? Do they go in from the back? How much tissue do they cut out? Is it going to bleed a lot? Yeah, what happens if they can't stop stop the bleeding? What happens if they leave the forceps in? <laughs> that has happened. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, oh, I don't know, maybe uh, giving my kidney isn't such a good idea. Okay. It's interesting to see how the mind changes. By the nature of the argument we present to it. Isn't that interesting? When we want to give it, we've presented one argument to our mind that we believe. Then when we don't want to give it, we present another argument to our mind that's the opposite of the first one that we believe. Yeah. Yeah. Our mind is really nuts, isn't it? Okay, so the next section is called Afflictive Mental States and the Nature of the Mind. So one moment of an affliction, such as anger, has two facets, the clarity and cognizance of the primary consciousness and the mental factor of anger that pollutes it. So remember... When different men, we have different mental states, they're not just one mental factor that is manifest in the mind. And it's not just the primary mind that manifests. It's a primary mind, meaning the, the, you know, is it a visual consciousness, ordinary, auditory consciousness, olfactory consciousness, so on, or the mental consciousness. And then it has all these other mental factors that help us, help it uh, perceive the object and discriminate the object and pay attention to it. And then sometimes, you know, once that gets, if, uh, gets to the mental consciousness, 
thinking about the object, then we may get, you know, some virtuous mental factors adding on, or we may get some non-virtuous ones, like anger or resentment, or some virtuous ones, some confidence and patience, or whatever. Okay? So it's not just one element. Yeah. They often in the text talk about the primary consciousness like the palm and the mental factors as the fingers. Okay. Jeffrey came up with another example that I feel is a better illustration because this one, this is very separate from these. Yeah. But in a mental state, they're all mixed together. So Jeffrey talks about them as the primary mind and the mental factors as lights. The analogy is as like flashlights and they have different colors and they're all shining together. And so the light blends. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, I like that analogy. Yeah. Like that one. Is it, then it doesn't make everything so thinking of your mind as in all sorts of blocks. Yeah. Okay. Uh, when a mind of anger is manifest, uh, these two, the primary consciousness and the mental factor of anger, cannot be separated. Does that mean that the clear and cognizant nature of the mind is defiled at that time? Okay. So according to the sutrayana view, uh, as taught in the sutras, from the viewpoint, uh, from the viewpoint that the primary consciousness and the mental factor of anger are concomitant, means that they are associated and together in that single mental event, it can be said that both are defiled because the anger is defiled and when the anger shines its light, it blends with the light from the, the primary consciousness, so they both become tinted. Okay. Um, however, this is not the whole picture because, you know, when they're concomitant, yes, both the primary mind and all the mental factors associated with that mind are defiled. Okay. But, um, Anger can be distract, extracted. You can remove the anger. So when it is counteracted, the clear and cognizant uh, consciousness remains. So it's, you could turn off that flashlight, but you still have all the other lights. Yeah. So this consciousness, the clear and cognizant conscious uh, nature of the mind, is not defiled, and its continuity can go on to awakening, since clarity and cognizance are also the nature of the awakened mind. This is one of the qualities of Buddha nature. Yeah, there's the Buddha. One aspect of Buddha nature that is permanent, that's the emptiness of inherent existence. Yeah. And one aspect of the Buddha nature that uh, can be developed. And those are any um, minds or mental factors 
that or anything whatsoever that can be developed uh, from the ordinary state to the state of Buddhahood. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, yeah, the clear, our, our clear and cognizant nature can continue on to Buddhahood. Okay, the consciousness that is clear and cognizant is said to be pure, while the mental state, meaning the whole, the um, the uh, primary consciousness and all the mental factors, while the mental state of anger, which cannot continue on to awakening, is afflictive and adventitious. Okay, so it, this is the muddy water example. Yeah, when when the mud. When the dirt is in the water, you can't see the difference. It's the water is dirty. Yeah. But you can take the mud out and then you can see the clear, the, the clear nature of the water. Okay. So that clear nature is not inherently, um, defiled or dirty. Okay. And the mud, the afflictions, uh, are adventitious, which means that they're temporary. Yeah. Within Tantrayana, both Dzogchen and the New Translation schools speak of the subtlest mind, which may be called Rigpa or the primordial clear light mind. In the Dzogchen system, Rigpa is said to pervade all states of mind, whether they are coarse, such as the consciousnesses manifest during our daily lives, our everyday lives, or whether the, those uh, mental states are subtle, such as the subtlest clear light mind that arises after the coarse consciousnesses have dissolved or absorbed. So in the death process, the, the coarse consciousnesses are, uh, dissolving. They, they no longer apprehend their, their objects. Okay. Uh, okay. For example, while dying or during special tantric meditations, then the coarse consciousnesses dissolve. When you die, it's involuntary. That's just, the death process, what happens when you're doing tantric practice, you deliberately uh, make the coarse minds dissolve. Yeah. Okay, so uh, Rigpa is undefiled, and because it pervades all mental states, the clear and cognizant aspect of those consciousnesses is undefiled. Yeah. But we can't say, yeah, the, uh, that the, the angry, the mind that is angry goes on to enlightenment. That mind is polluted. Okay. Both sentient beings and Buddhas possess the primordially pure awareness of Rigpa. And from that perspective, there is no difference between them. Okay, between sentient beings and Buddhas. Yeah. 
However, there is a great difference between having and not having the two obscurations. You might have the same nature of mind, but one nature of mind is polluted and the other one isn't. Okay. Um, so sentient beings must still practice the path because defilements do not vanish by themselves. Yeah. If only they did, wouldn't that be nice? From the Dzogchen perspective, when an afflictive mental state such as hatred or jealousy is manifest, the rigpa or clear light mind that pervades that coarse mind is not defiled. There is still the potential for rigpa to shine forth. Yeah. This is the source of statements in the Dzogchen literature that resemble Nagarjuna's assertion in his Praise to the Sphere of Reality where he says, within afflictions, uh, yeah, within afflictions, wisdom abides. That sounds totally contradictory, doesn't it? Which is why we always have to make sure of the meaning of different terms, because the terms can have different meanings in different contexts. Yeah. So here, wisdom refers to the cognitive component of that mind, its clarity and cognizance, not to actual wisdom. That cognitive component is called wisdom because it is the cause for wisdom to arise in the future. But it is not wisdom. Okay? The meaning is that amidst the afflictions, this undefiled, clear, cognizant component, uh, um, or rigpa, exists. Okay, so that hasn't gotten polluted. You know, everything else is adventitious, yeah, and it can be removed. So within afflictions, wisdom abides. Wisdom referring to the clear and cognizant nature. Okay. In the new translation schools of Tantrayana, this primordially pure mind is called the clear light mind. Similar to Rigpa, it continues from our present unawakened state to full awakening. But unlike Rigpa, which is manifest while the coarse consciousnesses are functioning, the innate clear light mind is said to manifest only when the coarse consciousnesses, which include the afflictions, have absorbed at the time of death or due to special tantric meditative practices. Okay, so from the Dzogchen viewpoint, even the afflictions are there. The, the clear and cognitive nature is still there. Okay, from the perspective of the new translations in Tantrayana, uh, when the mind is polluted, or when the the, um, the defilement, the afflictions are there, the whole mind is afflicted. Yeah, but when they're removed, the clear and cognizant nature remains. Okay, but when the coarse consciousnesses, which is where the afflictions abide, are manifest, then you can't see that clear cognitive nature by itself. 
So Dzogchen and the new translation systems agree that when the coarser levels of mind are manifest, the subtlest mind is also present. Okay? Present. It doesn't mean that everybody's saying that the subtlest mind is also manifest. Yeah? The Dzogchen people will say Rigpa is manifest. The new translation schools say, no, at that time it's not manifest. Okay? But... But they agree that when these coarser levels of mind are manifest, the subtlest mind is also present. As long as there is a being, a person, that subtlest mind is present. Hmm? They differ, the, the Sokchen and the New Translation systems, they differ on the issue of whether that uh, clear cognizant nature is active or dormant while the uh, coarse minds are functioning. Dzogchen says that Rigpa is active and manifest at the time, at that time. And the new translation schools say that the subtlest clear light mind is dormant. Okay. You have to dissolve the gross, those uh, coarse minds for the subtlest mind to arise. Dzogchen teaches a method whereby one can experience Rigpa even while the coarse consciousnesses are functioning. The new translation schools rely on dissolving the coarse consciousnesses and the winds that are their mount by means of special tantric meditation exercises to make manifest the subtlest clear light mind. Both agree on the necessity of assessing, accessing this subtlest mind because when used to realize empty, emptiness, it swiftly eradicates obscurations. So the two systems may disagree about, you know, whether that subtlest mind is, is manifest when the coarse minds, uh, are functioning. And that's a big, point of debate between them yeah but they agree that the main point is the same which is that subtlest mind when you can uh, when it's manifest can be used to realize emptiness and attain realizations okay a lot to think about here yeah and not everything will be crystal clear, but think about it. And as you hear more teachings, you know, you'll go, oh, yeah, I remember that term. What did it mean? And you, you know, begin to connect the point, the dots. Questions? Comments? Uh-huh. You said the scriptures don't talk about um, giving compassion to oneself. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if that's because renunciation um, or wisdom is actually what fulfills that same function? Yeah. I mean, renunciation is wanting your help, yourself to be free of suffering. Yeah, because you're renouncing yeah, the causes of the suffering. Yeah. So people 
People say, renunciation, oh, I can't have my chocolate, I have to renounce pleasure. Yeah, spiritual practice means dep deprivations. Not in the Buddhist sense, you know, the Buddhist sense is not an ascetic practice like this. Yeah, it's one of, you know, balance of moderation. Yeah. And wishing yourself to be free of the attachment to all the things that you see as pleasurable is a kindness to yourself. That's compassion. You you want yourself not to have the cause of misery, not to have the cause of dukkha. Yeah. And you want other beings not to have that cause too. Yeah. So just think, next time you're sitting there feeling sorry for yourself, you can think, I want to renounce the eight worldly concerns. That will bring me happiness in its causes and cut the suffering. And see if your mind believes that. Or if your mind goes, but, 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 first I want to have a good night's sleep, and then I want to have a hot breakfast, and then, you know, I want, I want, I want. I just want to make a comment that I think part of my struggle around this whole thing about how the clear kindness that nature of the mind can still be colored by anger is that I had this understanding that, that the clear cognizance that nature was like this entity that could make a decision about what, what it was reflecting and engaging in. That the clarity mm -hmm. and the cognizance is a, is a, is a neutral characteristic. So what we throw at it or what we, what rises in its mind, it can't say, well, I don't like that. It takes on whatever we Cognize. We cognize, right? Yeah. So, and then our practice is to identify what we are cognizing and to make the decisions on whether, you know, depending on the pleasant or unpleasant experience, do we want this or we don't want this? Yeah. So I keep that, that's been, I haven't had that thought clearly that I've always mm -hmm. thought that there's something entity like about the clarity and cognizance of the mind that can make these decisions. I just have to watch it do some, some wise stuff. Yeah. You know, no, those are the mental factors right. that make the decision. Right. Yeah. Right. I had the other way around. Okay. So then given that, is it then the practice of using the most subtle mind that you can conjure up? that then happens during the death process for someone who's experienced because it seems like you're not directing your mind then. Yeah, if if you are experienced in the tantric methods, then during the death process, as the elements are absorbing and are dissolving and the winds are dissolving and the course consciousnesses are dissolving, you're tracking the whole thing. Yeah, and you're preparing your mind. You know what's coming, and so you're preparing your mind. I want to be, a, you know, attentive when the clear light comes, and then use that mind to meditate on emptiness. And then maybe you read Minga Rinpoche's book. Mm -hmm. He had this near-death experience, but he's an experienced meditator. Mm -hmm. And he made it, well, one comment he made that I thought was quite amazing was like, it, it urged him afterwards to be able to get to a place in his practice where he could bring this about, because he had to have a near-death experience to 
bring yeah. that mind about. But the other thing is it made it sound like, and maybe that's the, the perspective that he practices in, is that there's an awareness that is aware of this um, clear light mind or very most subtle mind that he experienced. You mean there's two awarenesses? Well, because he his <laughs> practice seems to be about. I think he yeah. practices Zochen. Yeah. He, so yeah. his practice seems to be like this awareness that just tracks whatever is there, and yeah, that seemed to like that's what he had on board when this experience happened. So he was recognizing. Yeah. These. But it still makes yeah. it like there's a separation. Yeah, it does. But, you know, it's it's so interesting. Jeffrey actually commented on this at one point, you know, that the tradition is very clear that a consciousness has one object, you know, and and it, 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 you don't have these two things. But on the other hand, when you're cultivating serenity, with one corner of your mind, you're evaluating if you're still on the object or not. But that that's not a second mind. There's, there's something here that makes it difficult. Yeah. And I can't solve the, the riddle. I appreciate about what Jeffrey kind of says about those things is at some point each system has something that kind of doesn't work and they have to bring back in something that they, you know, I mean, he, he's made me yeah. a lot less rigid about how these things work. Yeah. You know, like they just, at some point, something kind of falls work. a little bit. Yeah. Something else has to be brought back into. Yeah. It, it's the whole difficulty of explaining things with concepts. You know, there's a certain limitation to, to conceptual mind. Yeah, and conceptual mind is very helpful. We need it to realize the path, but it's not the, the ultimate path. Yeah. So the presence of this uh, clear light mind is described as being present and dormant in the New Translation School. Uh-huh. So yeah, present means that it's there. It is there. But it's dormant. It's dormant. Yeah, like tonight at, at 2 o'clock in the morning, you're present, but your mind is dormant. Okay. Yeah, yeah. okay. Because <laughs> just looking at those two words a little bit, they seem contradictory. Yeah. A little bit. Okay. Yeah. I get it. Thank yeah. you. It's presently dormant. <laughs> <laughs> or it's dormantly present. <laughs> yeah. and by the way, this is one example of how His Holiness teaches. You know, on one hand, this is a sutra topic, and he's mixing highest yoga tantra you know, highest Tantra in it and Dzogchen in it, yeah. And he often does this the way he teaches, you know, presenting different view viewpoints at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then making some connection, how they come to the same point, even though they're different. So coming to the same point doesn't mean they're exactly the same. 
<laughs> yeah, it's, it makes you very aware of words. Like, similarly doesn't mean the same as same. It means similar. Yeah. So, are these two tissues the same, or are they similar? They're similar, but some people would look and say, no, they're exactly the same. Look, they're the same size, the same shape. They came from the, the same box, but that's not what same means when you talk about philosophy. Yeah, so they're similar. Okay. <laughs>